Hello, welcome back to the American Writers 100 Pages at a Time podcast. Now in this episode, I'll be continuing my look at the works of, of Thomas Jefferson as published in a one volume collection by the Library of America. Uh, in this particular episode, I'll, I'll begin looking at notes from the state of Virginia, but first I want to talk about uh, another short selection that we have here. Um, the Rights of British America, a summary view of the rights of British uh, America. Right um, now, I introduced a bit of my thoughts about where I really want to go with this Jefferson series in the previous episode, where I look at his autobiography, unpublished during his lifetime, and I talk a little bit about things I'm going to be focusing on, uh, really his political ideas, his ideas on race, his ideas on slavery. That that's really where my interest in looking at these this um, the series on Jefferson, you know, comes from. But I am going to let the text speak for themselves as much as I can and as I usually try to do in, in this series. So we're going to start with a summary view of the rights of British America. This was written in 1774 by Thomas Jefferson for the use by the First Continental Congress. It, it was published or was written in the aftermath of, of the, the Boston Tea Party and the Coercive Acts, which were the British response to the Boston Tea Party. As you remember from your grade school American history, if at least if you grew up in America. Um, after Boston Tea Party, the British passed, the British Parliament passed the Coercive Acts, or the Intolerable Acts, as they're sometimes called, by the Americans, uh, to basically punish New England, in particular, just replacing the, the local government, blockading the port, and doing all that kind of stuff. And that really sped along the movement towards militarizing the conflict and leading to fighting the next year in 1775, and then ultimately independence. So this was Thomas Jefferson. He wrote this really as a kind of a, a well, sometimes it kind of reads like a statement of principles to be shared with the Continental Congress, like here's what you here's how you should argue the point. Uh, to Britain, it's also presented though as a, you know, a, a principles they could take to the crown directly, and it's even at one point there's direct threats to the crown towards the end of the document. So um, it really is just a draft uh, of of principles, you know, a summary view of the rights of British America. That's what it's called. Uh, later on, it got published in a pamphlet form and got a wider circulation, but it was originally just kind of an internal document for the First Continental Congress, at least as I understand it. But it is Jefferson's major contribution to the pamphlet debate of, of the 1770s. Um, now, Jefferson did make comments about this particular document in his autobiography, which I looked at in the last episode, but I didn't talk specifically about this. So let's look at what he said. Quote, being elected one of my own country, I prepared a draft of instructions to be given to the delegates whom we should send to Congress and which I meant to propose at our meeting. In this, I took the ground, which from the beginning, I had thought the only one orthodox or tenable, which was that the relationship between Great Britain and these colonies was exactly the same as that between England and Scotland after the ascension of James and until the Union, and the same as her present relations with Hanover, having the same executive chief, but no other necessary political connection, and that our immigration from England to this country gave her no more rights over us than the immigrations of the Danes and Saxons gave to the present authorities of the mother country over England. So that, that kind of sums up the main point of, of the summary of the rights of, of, of Englishmen. Um, the core argument of the pamphlet was that the British Parliament did not have the authority under the British Constitution to rule the colonies. 
Now, it is interesting when you think about this that the U.S. Constitution and U.S. law would establish firm rights to rule acquired territory, right? That Now, originally, the U.S. Constitution didn't really talk directly about this, but the laws they inherited from the Articles of Confederation with the Northwest Ordinance had a very clear policy about how land in the West would be settled, turned into states, and, and which the federal government would have sovereignty over those lands. So this very question is addressed in, in America's founding documents, and, and some of which that Jefferson had a role in, in, in um, articulating, particularly because he, he's the first president to buy a bunch of land from you know, from France with the Louisiana Purchase. So he tests this this principle, can the United States expand its territory into new areas? Here he's arguing that, you know, the settlement of a new land did not carry with them the duties and, and all the kind of the, the the feudal land ownership of the king to these to these new lands. So basically British Parliament and the monarchy did not have authority under the British Constitution to rule the colonies. That's the argument. Right. And where does that authority come from? Well, in the British Constitution, it comes from history and tradition and, and inherited rights. Right. This is the whole Burkean argument about about rights, about inherited rights made during the French Revolution. So authority then rest resided in the institutions created by the settlers, if not in the institutions in Great Britain. Right. So you could have the same king, but and, and there's no movement here to really get rid of the king. That's going to come later. We're really going to be Thomas Paine who's going to say, why don't we just get rid of the king, too? Um, but it's it's about really that real authority for lawmaking and judicial power should be in the settlers' own hands and in the institutions they create there. Now, the entire document is presented as this kind of the set of instructions, as I suggested, guideline for arguments, principles that could be taken to the crown and to parliament. Now, the basic principles here are laid out pretty early in the document. Basically, I think the document has has basically three parts. First, a general statement of principles. Then some listing of specific rights that the people in British America hold. And, and I think there's three that he emphasizes. And then the question of, of, of where land ownership even comes from is, is addressed at the end. As for general principles, uh, he, he does think the Americans created new institutions and, and essentially new sovereignty when they settled in the Americas. Quote, to remind him that our ancestors before their immigration to America were then free inhabitants of British dominions in Europe and possessed a right which nature had given to all men of departing from their country in which chance not choice had placed them of going in quest of new habitations and of their establishing new societies under such laws and regulations as to them seem most likely to promote public happiness that their Saxon ancestors had under this universal law in like manner left their native wild woods in the north of Europe in the north of Europe, have possessed themselves with the island of Britain, then less charged with inhabitants, and had established their system of laws, which had long been the glory and protection of that country. End quote. It's interesting, of course, uh, England, when the Saxon, Anglo-Saxons came to, was not, came to, um, England was, you know, the Britain, the British Isles, was not uninhabited, and neither was the Americas uninhabited by people. They had their own systems and, and laws and traditions. It's not really addressed here, obviously. Um, that would just complicate it too much, I suppose. Uh, not that Jefferson is is not aware of the Indians and doesn't want to talk about them. He certainly does in notes from his, uh, on the state of Virginia, but certainly not in this document. It's not addressed. So uh, in his view, essentially, these, are, these lands are, 
are blank slates that from on which these settlers can create their own institutions. So the second part of the document then goes in, into a discussion of some of these specific rights of of these of the Americans, what they have, and he, there's really three that he emphasizes. One is free trade with the world, right? So he's denying the right of Parliament to regulate trade. Second, the right to maintain their own legislatures, and that's a real key one here because um, you know, of course, the British had their royal governors, right, and they had to interact with these these various assemblies that were created by the by the Americans. And he gives an explicit example of, 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 the, of the laws that were passed by Parliament to kind of suspend local legislatures, like in the course of X. The third would be the right to maintain criminal justice institutions that basically saying that, you know, the traditions of, of the colony should be respected in respect to criminal justice. We shouldn't, you know, have British courts or British royal courts come in and, and impose justice. Uh, you know, on places where perfectly reasonable criminal justice systems were established. So those are the three main rights he mentions. Um, and he, he mentions how they're all being prodded upon by, by the British in various ways. Um, and really the document then comes to a, an end after this with a discussion of the nature of land owning in the colonies. And he goes all the way back to the origin of of essentially sovereignty over land in England, which he basically says feudal ownership was established via William the Conqueror over, over Great Britain. So that whole system, the king, the nobility, parliament as, as a mediator between that. I don't think he goes into the Magna Carta here. I, I don't remember him doing that, but all of that comes out of, it's all an outcropping of the, of the Norman conquest, right? So anything the Normans didn't conquer it's outside of this domain, right? And that's why in this autobiography you mentioned Scotland, because that's an area that comes under British control because they had the same sovereign. They had the, you know, James, James the first of England, James, I think it's the sixth of Scotland. But, you know, Scotland maintained its own parliament for a long time. Um, so what Jefferson, these are called allodial rights versus kind of feudal rights. Feudal rights are what exists in England, kind of these inherited ownerships of land through the generations from this conquest. But what you have at the Americas are allodial rights, which are rights based on settlement, defending land, basically kind of squatters rights, we might say. Now, I don't know if that's a, quite the right term, legal term for it. And maybe a lawyer there can identify it, but it's not a bit like almost squatters rights to me that by living there and developing the land and you know, building homes there and defending it and building our own institutions there, out of that come certain rights to, to the land. Now, the only real uh, question I could think of to maybe oppose this or to maybe question Jefferson on this document is what about the loyal ran, royal land grants? Didn't a lot of ownership in the colonies come from these large land grants, right? Where the King gave the Virginia company certain rights or the Massachusetts Bay company had certain rights to control territory or get, you know, Lord Baltimore was given the land that would be Maryland. And a lot of these colonies had their origin as loyal Royal land grants, right? Now to be, you know, to be sure Jefferson doesn't really deal with this directly, but he does state that the crown never had these rights to grant anyone in the Americas anyways. By creating these land grants, he was essentially just assuming certain rights that he didn't have, have a legal right to. 
So um, that's that's basically what's in this little pamphlet. Um, so while the document doesn't call for independence, the pamphlet essentially lays down the legal groundwork for autonomy of the colonies in pretty much all legislative, judicial, and economic affairs. For all intents and purposes, independence, but still calling for, you know, perhaps having the same sovereign, but but no, but parliament would have no rights then to legislate for, for the colonies. But I would also say that doc I noticed that the document is a bit of a threat, and it's presented as a last case. In the final page of the document, for instance, it leaves the consequences of rejection unspoken, but perhaps inferable, where Jefferson writes, this, sire, is our last, our determined resolution, and that you'll be pleased to interpose with that efficiency which your earnest endeavors may ensure you produce rebreast of of these our great grievances to quiet the minds of your subject in British America and gets any apprehensions of future encroachment to establish fraternal love and harmony through the whole of empire and that these may continue to be the to last latest ages of time is the fervent prayer of all British America. So still conciliatory, but still saying this is our last, you know, effort right now. Of course, there'll be other efforts. There'll be the Olive Branch petition, which Jefferson has a role in, in authoring as well. But um, anyways, that's the document. That's the summary rights of British North America. It's the first time I ever read it, but it's um, worth taking a look at if you're interested in the pamphlet debate that led to the American Revolution. All right, then let's just jump ahead and, and look at uh, notes on the state of Virginia. The reason, you know, normally I look at try to like look at one text in each of these, but well, you know, when it comes to short stories or these political writings, I'm going to have to break things up a little more creatively at, at times so the rest of this episode we'll look at the first part of notes from the state of virginia and the next episode we'll finish up the rest of notes uh on the state of virginia i do want to say though I, I made an error in the last episode where i mentioned it being published in in 1800 actually notes from the state of virginia was published in 1785 and it was an honest mistake i was looking at the it did sound wrong when i said it but uh i was a bit tired but when I was looking at the bio, the the timeline biography that all these volumes have at the end, it did say after 1800, you know, published, blah, 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 something, notes from the state of Virginia. And I just kind of, you know, in, internalized that. If you take a closer look at that statement, actually, they, he, he published like an appendix to notes on the state of Virginia about the Logan, Chief Logan story. I'll get to the Chief Logan story in this particular episode. But... Um, so yeah, he, he published kind of an addition to it in 1800, but uh, it was published in, in 1785 um, first. Um, now, it was first written in 1781, and then it went through some kind of, he added to it and updated some topics, and then it came out in various editions, I think 1785 and 1787. So it was actually, most of the ideas established here were written in the final years of the American Revolution. So 1781 is when most of this was written, although some was updated. The book, uh, of course, is the only book Jefferson published during his, his lifetime. It's really a, made up of answers to 23 queries on different aspects of Virginia. Essentially, someone asked him these 23 questions and he answered these 23 questions um, as a person. And then it was published kind of privately and in a small circulation. Later on, he published it more broadly. Now, why is this text interesting to us? Well, it, it's certainly one of the most important books written in, in 18th century America. Um, I don't know how it compares with maybe globally how important it is, but it's certainly important for for uh, North American history. Uh, 
Um, I think what the text really, it's, its legacy is on three things. And the first is what it tells us about race, because Jefferson spends a lot of time talking about Native Americans and, and black people in this document. And he talks a lot about slavery and the treatment of black people. And he talks a lot about Indians and the treatment of, of Native Americans. Um, and if you really want to understand what Jefferson has to say about these issues and these groups, you got to read this, this book. Um, I think it's also interesting because there's a lot here that tell us about science and ecology. Jefferson is being a bit of a scientist when he wrote this, collecting data, making observations. Some of these observations he made himself, some he collected from other naturalists and, and writers. But he is trying to be objective and scientific and, and, and present the most up-to-date knowledge. And there's a lot of interesting ecological issues that come up. And, and one we're going to talk about in this this episode is the question of, of marine fossils inland in Virginia and how they got there, right? And this is before understandable continental drift existed. And then third, and we won't have time to say much about this in this episode, but it'll be a big issue in the next one. And that is what Jefferson says about the evolution of government in Virginia. So um, I'm just going to look at the first six because that'll get me to page roughly 200 of, of the book. Um, of, of this collection of this anthology and it's not quite halfway through notes from the state of virginia the book's not very long by the way it's it, you know you can find like thick editions i've seen thick editions of it but they must have a lot of notes in it the book itself is less than 200 pages long um and a lot of these queries are actually quite short and i won't say much about them but i'll just look at the first six in this episode and spend also my time talking about number six which is the the longest in the whole book and maybe the one of the most important. So the first one, the boundaries of Virginia. This is just boring stuff. It it does give some. It does historicize the boundaries of Virginia, though, showing how Virginia gave up a lot of its land claims to Congress. That's some American history you may have come across, because uh, there's all these competing land claims out in the West. And and one thing that happened during the Articles of Confederation period was the Western boundaries were all kind of cleaned up a little bit. The second uh, query is about the rivers of Virginia. Now, this one is kind of interesting. He he does mention the rivers of Virginia, and he, he must mention them all. I mean, I don't know if he's missing any, but he certainly mentions a lot. But he also mentions rivers in North America more broadly that he thinks will shape the experience of Virginians. For instance, he talks quite a lot about the Mississippi River as a river that's going to carry, that's going to be core to Virginia's experience in the future. The Missouri River here, the Illinois River, right? Ohio River. These are rivers that are kind of on the frontiers of, of Virginia or completely outside of Virginia altogether. So these, in a sense, he's very interested in the role of rivers in connecting Virginia to other states. And this is, the, he talks, for instance, about the Hudson River and the freezing of the Hudson River. And he's got some concerns about when Virginia commerce can kind of connect them or or to what degree do the rivers connect Virginia to the Atlantic and therefore to the rest of the other states. I should if I say colonies, I'm, I, I apologize. It's by this point we should be talking about states, you know, the the different states of the of of the Atlantic coast. Right. So the point here is Jefferson seems to be able to envision here a market revolution, the market revolution of the mid 19th century, which, of course, had the internal rivers of North America as key to that that history. Right. The canal boom 
Erie Canal and all the other canals that are developed, the roll of the Mississippi and the steamboats along the Mississippi, all before the railroads, right? But the, the, the connecting the rivers was key to the transportation revolution. And Jefferson seems to be able to envision this. And for all his kind of quaintness and his, you know, the agrarian ideal and his interest in a farmer's republic, and he even insists in this book that Virginia really doesn't have cities or ports or really even towns, it's just villages and farms. He does have an idea of a of a broader relationship with other other markets. Take, for example, this bit, um, quote, for the trade on the lakes and their waters westward of Lake Erie, when it should have entered the lake, it must coast along its southern shore on account of the number and excellence of its harbors. The northern, though shortest, having fewer harbors and these unsafe. Having reached Cayuga to proceed unto New York, it will have 825 miles and five portages, whereas it is but 425 miles to Alexandria, its emporium on the Potomac. If it turns into Cayuga and passes through that, Big Beaver, Ohio, Yogaconi, and Potomac, and these are but two portages, the first of which between Cayuga and Beaver may be removed by uniting the sources of these waters. And he goes on and on about portages and boring stuff like that. But his point is, you know, there's, uh, there's other ways, there's Virginian rivers that can get us to the west better than the Great Lakes, right? But he's thinking about the relationship between Virginia and the rest of, of, of the United States. And the frontier even now that's query two query three is on seaports and jefferson just ignores entirely this whole question saying there are no ports in virginia there's only those rivers i mentioned which i don't know if is is true there must be some ports so here we have to go to wikipedia and look at the most populous cities in the united states and so 1790 uh you got the top 10 most populated cities now Two of these, they, they're, they're tied for 10th. They each have 5,600 people in them. They're Marblehead and Southwark, Pennsylvania. So, the you know, even when you're looking at the top 10 cities, we're talking about really small cities. Um, the largest, New York, had 33,000 at the time in 1790. But if you jump to 1800, which, of course, is not when he wrote this, Norfolk, Virginia has six, six 7,000 people in it. Um, it's his only appearance in this top 10 list an appearance of it and the only appearance of a city in Virginia in the top 10 list throughout his own history. So, um, it never again, gets another city in the top 10, but Norfolk, that's, that's the, really the city I was thinking about when, when I read this, this passage, you know, didn't Norfolk have a, wasn't it a port when was it in a Harbor, but I don't know. I, I, I'm not, I, I don't have enough knowledge to really comment, but um, it is an interesting take, though, contrasted with the earlier statements he made about rivers, where he's really interested in kind of Virginia's relationship with the rest of the world. But here it's more in line with this view of Virginia as a land of villages and farmers without really the need for cities. So that's just query three. Literally, it's, it's one sentence, query, his answer to query three. Query four is called mountains, and there's not much to say here. There's just a listing of the mountain ranges in, in Virginia. It's about three pages long. Not much of interest in there. And same with uh, query five, which is about cascades. But he only speak about one cascade. There's only the one waterfall in Virginia, uh, which is the following spring in Augusta. But he then takes the time to talk about caverns and caves in the state. And it's, it's much like query four in that it's just a list of different ge 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 geological sites. But where we really want to focus is query six. Query six starts out 
looking pretty boring. Like it, it looks like more just geography and flora and fauna. The actual query is a notice of the mines and other subterraneous riches, its trees, plants, fruits, etc. Really what this is looking at is the mineral wealth, the plant and animal life of Virginia. But he doesn't stop there. He actually ends up talking about a lot of interesting issues in this this section. So you could almost, I, th I think, if you, you know, pull out this section and read it as a separate essay, I think you could find a lot of interesting things to think about in it without necessarily reading the rest of the notes of the state of Virginia. I think the whole work kind of has that feeling where there's sections where you just, they're outdated. They don't really say much to us now unless maybe we have a very esoteric interest. But there are other moments which are such universal fascination and tell us so much about America, Americans' views of science or race at the time that it's like, wow, this is such an important book. So um, I know, a lot to talk about. So start, he starts with minerals. And in his discussion of Virginia's mineral deposits, he comes across the question of marine fossils in the state, even in hills and mountains. And the question is how to explain this away. And this forces Jefferson to go into all kinds of other theories about, their, about this question. And apparently this is something that came across in 18th century science, maybe even 17th century science. And that was the appearance of of shell fossils, I mean, that's the main ones they would, would have found, like inland and maybe hundreds of miles from the sea. Close to the sea, you can understand, you know, something died and left a, left a relic. Now, this is before we had the understanding of, of how old the earth was. I, I think it's not till really the early 19th century. You know, and this is really key to Darwin and Darwinism is just the understanding of how old the earth was. Um, and that doesn't come across a bit until a bit later. Now, someone like Jefferson maybe wouldn't rely on biblical narratives about how old the earth is, but doesn't mean that there was a clear understanding of just how old the earth was, right? And, you know, even if someone said millions of years old, they weren't even close to how old the earth really is, right, with five billion years. So um, how to explain this, right? And there's a couple of explanations that, that, are ready for us. One is the biblical explanation of a flood, right? It's easy to under, understand if you just say the world was flooded at one point, right? Then you had all these uh, shells everywhere and they got deposited all over all over the place, right? I, obviously, this is not going to satisfy someone like Jefferson who doesn't put too much credence in the biblical narrative. He also mentions a, a solution given to this problem by Voltaire, which kind of is about like a it sounds like that there's like soft parts of the world like soft stone which would allow fossils to kind of migrate this is what he writes quote he cites an in instance in Touraine where in the space of 80 years a particular spot of earth had become twice metamorphized into soft stone which had become hard when employed in building in this stone shells of various kinds were produced discoverable at first only with a microscope but afterwards growing with the stone from this fact, I suppose, we would have to infer that besides the usual process for generating shells by the elaboration of earth and water in animal vessels, nature may have provided an equivalent operation by passing the same materials through the pores of calcareous earthen stones, end quote. So in this soft stone, there was the possibility of basically making shells that weren't necessarily connected to animal life. Wow. So this is him kind of grasping for straws, I suppose. But 
Um, it's just such an interesting question, and it, it's such a, a fascinating window into how people before they understood how old the Earth was and continental drift made sense of these kind of uh, ge- ge- geological anomalies like marine fossils in in mountains and you know above sea, le- sea level. Now, much of this chapter, Query 6, is a long listing of minerals and plants and animal species in the Americas. But this leads him into a discussion of Indians who, of course, domesticated animals and plants in the region. And Jefferson then, therefore, addresses the historicity of Indians in these passages. And he does it in a couple ways. One is that he has a very great interest in the American elephant due to fossil records and Indian accounts of these beasts. Essentially, we're talking about the mammoths, right? Which there are fossil records of these mammoths. And Jefferson doesn't believe they're extinct. He actually puts them down as an extant species because he has Indians talking about them. Now, maybe I don't know if they they had oral traditions or they're just responding to the fact that they also saw these fossils and, and, and concluded that these things are around and made up stories about that. But Jefferson seems to believe that these mammoths are still around. They're just, they're just um, essentially cryptozoological. And so he, he creates a chart and he puts the mammoth as extant, an extant species. And he actually addresses this in the text that follows. Where is it? Um, the bones of the mammoth, which have been found in America, are as large as those found in the old world. It may be asked why I insert the mammoth as if it still existed. I ask in return, why should I omit it? as if it did not exist. Such is the economy of nature, that no instance can be produced of her having permitted any one race of her animals to be extinct, of her having formed any link of her great work so weak as to be broken. To add to this, the traditional testimony of Indians that this animal still exists in the northern and western parts of America would be adding the light of a taper to that of the meridian sun. Those parts still remain in their aboriginal state, unexplored and undisturbed by us or by others for us. We may as well they may he may well exist there now as he formerly did where we find his bones. End quote. Um and yeah, I don't disagree with them there, right? There's obviously much Jefferson didn't know about the Americas at large, so there's plenty of space. I mean, even now you got people who believe in Bigfoot and stuff. So, um, praise, kudos to the cryptozoologists, particularly in the time when there were still wild places. Let's keep the imagination alive with these things. Um, Jefferson also here talks about, although of course he doesn't use the language, of the Columbian Exchange. Um, this is the term Columbian Exchange comes from a modern historian. I think it's Alfred Crosby who first uses the term. And this is just about the exchange of plants, animals, diseases, um, cultures um, between the Americas, Africa, and Europe, right? But really the old world and the new world, if you like that terminology. If you don't, just say that Africa, Europe, and America, right? The exchange of, of, of species. The horse, of course, and all the large domesticated mammals came to America. And with them, the diseases that... the this um, zootopic diseases that came from those animals were came to the Americas and the Americans of course brought squash and maize and, and, and those things to, to Europe. And in, when Jefferson made his lists of, of the plants and animals, he, he made it very clear that these things were indigenous to America. These were indigenous to Europe and these now exist in both, right? So things like rats, which were, 
American, like or no European rats were brought over to the Americas. Right, that was something that came from Europe. So it's it's actually uh you know I'm not sure it's 100 percent right, and and I'm not interested in going and digging up each of these, but he does create a chart here that which you can which you can reference that shows he has a pretty good idea of which species came from from the Americas, and which came from which were brought in by Europe. But in this, he acknowledges just how much the Americans domesticated, right? So when I talk about him acknowledging the historicity of, of the Americans, not seeing them just of nature, but actually of cultivators of nature, uh, domesticators of nature, you know, it's, it's there. I mean, there is this noble savage idea, but, and Jefferson certainly contributes to that in his own way. But I think by and large, there's an idea here that the Indians are creating history and he's not denying them that, 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 that agency, at least not in the ecological sense. So towards the end of this long query on plants, animals, minerals of, of America, he shifts the conversation to Indians directly. And he's really interested in the gender relations of, of the Indians to such a degree he kind of walks, steps back from this conversation about the flora and fauna of Virginia to actually talk about Indian gender relations. Now, I guess one way to read this is to say, does Jefferson see Indians as just part of the flora and fauna, or just part of nature, of course, which is not an uncommon idea in colonial America and early American history to, to not, not acknowledge the, that Indians had history, just kind of making them part of history. I don't think Jefferson's fully doing that here. But it, it is suspicious he, he, there's not a separate query about Indians where he addresses them. I think there's one about tribes and their politics. And we'll look at that next time. But he kind of adds it here. And why does he put it in this conversation? Well, the reason he does do this here is because he's talking about transplantation. He's trying to understand the origin of, of the Americans. And he just kind of says, well, the same question we have about where the origin of these species from the Americas are like he is fascinated by the fact that there seems to be kind of an American elephant, a mammoth that seems to be similar to the old world mammoth. He wants to know how they got there. And then he says, well, let's look at the people question. And this just kind of morphs then into a conversation about Indian cultures and society. So it's not the most, I guess, sensitive placing of the conversation, but I'm not sure it's, it's, I'm not sure Jefferson is trying to say that Indians are just part of the minerals, animals, vegetables, milieu of Virginia. Um, but anyways, moving on. Uh, I may be wrong about that, but but moving on, um, the gender stuff. You know, this was, of course, a, a real sticking point in Jefferson's view of, of Indian cultures. Um, we'll talk about that later when we look at his, his letter to Handsome Lake or his speech to Handsome Lake. Quote, the women are subjected to unjust drudgery. This, I believe, is the case with every barbarous people. With such force is law, the stronger sex therefore imposes on the weaker. It is civilization alone which replaces women in the enjoyments of their natural equality. That first teaches us to subdue the selfish passions and respect those rights and others which we value in ourselves. Were we in equal barbarism, our females would be in equal drudges. End quote. Um, a lot to unpack there. First, this, I mean, where this comes from is this observation that Indian women farmed, 
right? We're going to see this more when he, in his letter to Handsome Link, where he really emphasizes this point. But uh, just in general, he talks here about drudgery. But his idea that it's civilization, his associating with gender inequality with with barbarism and civilization with some kind of path towards gender equality, I just don't think is bared out by the evidence of, of the time, right? Like women, maybe they certainly had a very different social role in, in Europe, but my understanding of Native American history is that Indian women had a lot more autonomy, a lot more political power and a lot more freedom than women in Europe did at the time. So this is just a, a complete confused view of, of the reality on the ground. But it, it fits to some enlightenment views about, about civilization and, and, and kind of man's natural state. Now that said, there's a lot he seems to respect about the Indians. He respects their martial characteristics. He respects their refusal to be servants. Um, and this comes close to, he, now he tells the, the case of Chief Logan. Now, Chief Logan was an Iroquois chief who, who Jefferson finds to be the equal in rhetoric to the Roman greats. And he talks about the um, Logan in direct comparison to them. And he actually reproduces Logan's famous appeal, right? So the, the story of Logan, if, if you don't remember it or never come, came across it, is it's, it's in 1774, so what, seven years before this was written, you had an event called the Yellow Creek Massacre in which a group of Virginians um, murdered a bunch of, of, you know, a bunch of Iroquois or a Mingo group, which are actually Iroquois-speaking group that were in the, in the area. Now, among these that were murdered was Logan's brother and, and some other relatives. So then Logan applied kind of Indian tradition to this event and, and sought out revenge against the, the Virginians. Now, this led to a military conflict called Dun Dunmar's War, which was just basically one battle. And the Indians then agreed to a, a treaty. So Logan basically surrendered. But in this, he, he gave this speech, quote, I, and this is reproduced word for word in notes on the state of Virginia. Quote, I appeal to any white man to say if he entered Logan's cabin hungry and he gave him not meat, if he ever came all cold and naked and he clothed him not. During the course of this, of the last long and bloody war, Logan remained idle in his cabin, an advocate for peace. Such was my love of the whites that my countrymen pointed as they passed and said, Logan is a friend of the white man. I have ever thought to live with you but for the injuries of one man, Colonel Crespus, the last spring in cold blood and unprovoked murdered all the relations of Logan not sparing even my women and children. There runs not a drop of my blood in the veins of any living creature. This has called on me for revenge. I have sought it. I have killed many. I have fully glutted my vengeance. For my country, I rejoice at the beams of peace. But do not harbor a thought that mine is the joy of fear. Logan never felt fear. He will not turn his heel to save his life. Who is there to mourn for Logan? Not one. End quote. And that's, that's Logan's lament. That's Logan's... Um, great speech this historic speech and this and jefferson thinks this is the equal of of, of the romans essentially um and then he gets to the question of like well then why haven't the indians created you know had a scientific revolution or achieved all these things that europeans have and jefferson seems to say it's 
it's not about lack of capacity or intellectual capacity. It, it's a, they haven't had writing is, is kind of how he pirouettes on this issue. But yeah, he certainly sees the Indians in this passage as, as having a place in, in kind of the brotherhood of, of mankind, but they kind of have to be civilized is I think where he goes with this. And we'll look back at this when we look at his letters to handsome Lake. Um, so anyways, that's, that's what's in query six. So obviously there's a lot in query six, although much of it is, is kind of banal listings of, of, you know, this fish, that bird or whatever, but it's, there's a lot of interesting stuff in this query six, especially about Indians, but also about natural history. So we see that the first part of this book is pretty much run of the mill geography, but it's, but it's all challenged by the realities of history, the history of the earth, which Jefferson could not have really known about, but does seem to explain the rise and fall of species and the drift of continents, which is something, both are issues he doesn't fully understand, but he has to grapple with in the evidence he has in front of him, or at least he's, there's evidence that he can't understand under his current theories. Um, that could have been explained if he would known about the rise and fall of species, if he would have known Darwin and the age of the earth, but he doesn't. So he he's struggling with that. And I, I think it's fun to to look at it for that reason. But we also see the indigenous people as a people with a history. They've domesticated animals and plants. And as Jefferson saw it, a future of in a broader brotherhood of mankind he even talks about like a transatlantic kind of brotherhood that could develop. Um now, this is, of course, something he was not very generous, generous enough to extend to Africans and African-Americans. And we'll see that in the next episode where we look at the rest of the notes in the state of Virginia, where he will say more about Indians, but he also will say a lot about about black people. So that's going to do it for this episode. Um, we've looked at summary uh, view of the rights of British America and and the first part of notes from the state on the state of Virginia. So. Um, if there's anything I forgot or anything I should have mentioned or any interpretation you know of that that will be relevant to me, please leave your comments below or send me an email at 100pagescast at gmail.com. I very much look forward to hearing what you have to say about these texts. In the next episode, I'll look at the rest of Notes on the State of Virginia. So if you're reading along, just just read the rest of that, that book. So as always, thanks for listening. And I'll see you next time.